It's Wednesday, April 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The fallout over the Dante Wright shooting continues in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. We are seeing more protests and also the resignation of Police Chief Tim Gannon and Officer Kim Potter, who shot Wright. As it stands, they are making it seem like a case of mistaking her firearm for her taser, but the community is not accepting it. Tori Van Oot, Twin Cities reporter at Axios, joins us for the latest police shooting happening under the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial. Next, the FDA and the CDC has paused the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine while it reviews data after finding six women who came down with blood clots after receiving the vaccine. One of those women died. Still, this is extremely rare. These are the only six cases so far after almost 7 million shots that have been administered. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what we know about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Finally, President Biden is planning to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021. The plan will not be conditions-based and will allow the U.S. to shift to current priorities. Messi Ryan, national security reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Ten miles from where the Chauvin trial regarding George Floyd was taking place that a police officer would shoot and kill another unarmed black man. Joining us now is Tori Van Oot, Twin Cities reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Tori. Hey, thanks for having me. We've been seeing things move uh, kind of quickly here in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. This is uh, talking about the story of uh, Dante Wright. Uh, he was shot by Officer Kim Porter there. She's a 26-year okay. veteran of the police department. And we saw some uh, resignations. Officer Kim Porter resigned her post. Police Chief Tim Gannon also resigned. This is two days after the death of Dante Wright. So, uh, Tori, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. This is something that a lot of observers and activists wanted to see. They, they were urging the mayor to fire both Officer Potter, who, as you mentioned, is a longtime veteran of the force, was actually the local police union leader at one point, and also the police chief. And I think the police chief was kind of targeted with those calls, both because of his you know, kind of public statements about kind of explaining from his vantage point what happened here, that he believes it was an accident, that she was reaching for her taser, she saw it and accidentally pulled her gun. Um, and also there was some backlash or criticism of uh, the local police department's handling of interactions or confrontations with protesters. So the mayor had said that he thought that both Potter and uh, the chief should be fired. And he had actually taken some actions that would have given him the authority to do that. And instead both announced preemptively that they would resign themselves today. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the entire encounter with Dante Wright. Mm -hmm. So he was pulled over for uh, expired tags on his car. The officers pulled him out. They were going to handcuff him. And then he kind of wrestled himself away and he jumped back into his car. He was about to take off. That's when Kim Porter was there. She pulled her, her firearm out, but she did yell out, taser, taser, taser in the video. And uh, as soon as it happened, she shot him. She went, oh, crap, I shot him. And uh, the car kind yeah. of drove away and he, he crashed after that. Uh, so that's where the police chief said, that's why he said, I think she meant to pull out her taser. 
and it was a you know a big mistake in in firing her gun at him. Yes, and this is something that is rare but has happened before. The Associated Press and others have documented some of these cases. You know, the taser is supposed to be on one side, the gun on the other. They weigh different amounts, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes in that split second, you know, it has happened before. That explanation did not do much to calm or appease community members, family members, activists who are very upset and angry at another police killing of a Black man here in Minnesota. They've essentially said it's it's inexcusable still. And also that, you know, they've questioned why he was pulled over in the first place, right? This idea of being pulled over for expired tabs, this idea of, you know, being apprehended or attempted to be taken into custody over what was essentially a missed court appearance. And right. so, you know, that explanation has gotten some scrutiny, even as the body camera video that has been released have shows what, what, what you explained there. Right, exactly. And really what has happened uh, with this whole taser gun incident, you know, as you mentioned, oh. the AP kind of looked into it. I, I think they said it happens less than uh, once every year, you know, for, oh. for some statistics that they have. So it is pretty rare that it happens, but they have a few cases where the police officers that that's mm-hmm. what went on. And you're right. And so what the calls are, are for a lot more training, obviously. And the AP, I think, made the note, you know, when officers train, they train a lot more at pulling out their handgun than they do at pulling out their tasers. So I just kind of more evidence to why it shouldn't have happened. But that's what uh, a lot of people are calling for, more training so that that doesn't happen in the future. And more training. And, you know, here in Minnesota, obviously, this is all happening against the backdrop of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who is facing murder charges and the death of George Floyd. That case is front of mind for everyone. It's very raw and recent here. But we've also had a number of other um, very high profile police shootings here in Minnesota and in the Minneapolis area in recent years. Jamar Clark, Flando Castile, Justine Damon. And so there are calls beyond just more training to do more, more police accountability measures, more drastic changes to policing here at the local and the state level. What's going to happen next as far as uh, any possible charges? You know, we've been talking about this taser gun thing. In a lot of those other cases, charges were brought and officers received jail time. So what's the next step for this part of the story? Charges is definitely what we are watching next. Today on Wednesday, we are expecting to hear an answer from the Washington County District Attorney on charges. He's been reviewing it. Brooklyn Center, like Minneapolis, is in Hennepin County, but there's a kind of new practice where district attorneys hand off cases involving local police departments to a neighboring county because of potential conflicts of interest since they work so closely together on other criminal cases. So, you know, the district attorney in charge of this case has said he's going to decide whether to bring charges. Right. And, uh, you know, how this case progresses, as you mentioned, all happening in the background of the Derek Mm -hmm. Chauvin trial. So tensions are high. And once again, you know, we see an unfortunate shooting like this. So we'll we'll continue to monitor all of that. Tori Van Oot, Twin Cities reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think this is an unusual occurrence of a serious adverse event that you want to make sure before you go forward, you investigate it thoroughly. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're pausing so that they can look at it more carefully. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me. 
We had some interesting vaccine news as the U.S. was pausing the administering of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine after there was uh, an issue with these uh, rare blood clot cases that we've been hearing a lot about. The cases are extremely rare. There's only six cases in about almost 7 million doses that have been administered so far of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So very, very rare. This was uh, found in six women between the ages of 18 and 48 I think they uh, happened between six days and 13 days after they got their vaccination. So, Peter, tell us what we're learning about uh, what's going on with this. They expect the pause to only be about a few days. That's what one uh, FDA official said today. So, as you say, these were extremely rare, but the um, events themselves were serious. One of the women died. And the issue seems to be a, a very rare type of clot that affects the brain, and it's called a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this is something that just also happens very rarely apart from the vaccine. But what I think caught the attention of health officials was that this was happening in a small number of people who got the vaccine, and they were having low blood platelet counts. And so these two things together were unusual enough that health officials think there there could be a cause and effect here and that it's not just a case of someone getting the vaccine and experiencing an adverse health effect that they might have experienced anyway. And so that's where I think the caution comes in. And, and that explains, I think, why, despite the small numbers, health officials wanted to take this pause. Now, the other question that arises out of this is how will it impact the vaccine rollout? Officials have said it won't really impact it that much. There's enough doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which we haven't heard any really serious side effects about. There's enough of those doses to go around. And uh, I know people that were scheduled for J&J vaccines, you know, they were rescheduling them for one of the others. So the impact should be minimal, at least they say. The J&J vaccine was the third one to be authorized. And so it's made up a smaller share of the overall vaccine supply since it was authorized in late February. Now, it's true that A lot of people were looking forward to the arrival of the J&J vaccine, both to boost the overall supply of vaccines and, you know, for some people make it a simpler and more convenient option because it's a single dose as opposed to the two doses for the other vaccines. So people were counting on it to really augment and play a big role in the overall vaccination effort. But that said, with this pause, and and we don't know how long it will last, it could be a few days, but um, even with that, There are still many millions of doses of these other two vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna that are out there and that really mitigate the overall effect of losing vaccinations with the J&J vaccine for at least for a few days. Right. Now, you know, the other thing, and we've talked about this before, Peter, vaccine hesitancy. It's a tough call when, you know, you have such few cases, rare instances of this happening to pause something like this. As it is, there are people that are hesitant to take the vaccine already. This could further that. We were hearing Mm -hmm. about AstraZeneca and blood clot issues. We're hearing about this one now. The AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are both viral vector shots, so they're made similarly, you know, not exactly the same. But the Mm -hmm. vaccine hesitancy now comes back into the question. Yeah, and I think, you know, there have been signs that vaccine hesitancy was declining, surveys showing that you know, a smaller proportion of people were saying that they just don't plan to get vaccinated compared with earlier on in the in the mass vaccine rollout. But certainly that's a concern that health authorities 
have to sort of deal with. You know, they talked about it today, officials from the FDA and the CDC, that they wanted to get this information out there. But they did so knowing that it could be sort of fodder for the people who are very skeptical of vaccines. And so it's certainly something to watch to see what effect now this risk and and the communications about the risk um, to see what effect that has on vaccine hesitancy uh, going forward. You did note in the article in clinical trials, there were a couple of uh, other blood clot issues that came up, but they were very minimal as well. So there have been signs of clots, generally speaking, although I don't believe that this particular type of clot was spotted in the clinical trials. You know, I think we'll we'll just have to wait and see how long the pause lasts and just even to be sure whether health authorities uh, allow vaccinations to resume. There's going to be a meeting tomorrow of a committee of um, outside experts that advise the CDC on vaccines. And so they're going to examine all the available evidence and discuss it on a public forum. And then I believe they'll take a vote on what they think should happen next. And if I could just add that one thing that does, I think, factor into whether or not, or at least how soon they'd want to lift the pause on vaccinations with J&J is that we do have these first two vaccines approved that have very high efficacy and with not really not with this type of safety risk um, associated with them. And so in light of that, in a way, the health authorities can afford to err on the side of caution and knowing that it's not going to really throw a wrench into the mass vaccination campaign. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. The violence in Afghanistan, the security situation, it will not be dependent on how things go in this peace process that is now unfolding slowly outside of Afghanistan. And so they're saying the time has come. You know, we've been there for 20 years and it's time to remove American forces entirely. Joining us now is Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Missy. Thank you. We got some news out of the administration about the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. President Biden said he wants to do this over the course of the coming months with a complete military exit on or before the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks in 2001. I think that we have about 2,500 troops there in Afghanistan and a, a bunch more foreign forces, uh, NATO, mostly NATO troops. But it looks like uh, this is going to get done you know, in the coming months. So what, what else are we hearing about it? Well, they're saying that this will not be a conditions-based decision, meaning that it will not be dependent on the violence in Afghanistan, the security situation. It will not be dependent on how things go in this peace process that is now unfolding slowly outside of Afghanistan. And so they're saying the time has come. You know, we've been there for 20 years and it's time to remove American forces entirely, although they do stipulate that there will be some sort of small military presence at the U.S. Embassy to secure the diplomats there. I mean, what kind of uh, reaction, have, if any, have we seen from the Taliban or, or, or other places about this uh, new deadline? We have heard reactions from Congress. And interestingly, there are supporters in both parties and opponents in both parties. And basically, the supporters are saying, you know, the time has come. You know, there's no reason to think that the U.S. troop presence is going to pacify Afghanistan. 
now when it hasn't failed, when it's failed to do so on a sustainable basis for 20 years. And then the opponents say that, you know, doing this at this point where there isn't a peace deal actually could jeopardize the gains that have been made in Afghanistan and potentially make for it becoming a safe haven and another base from which to launch attacks against the United States again. You know, the administration is saying that we want to shift to our current priorities, which is, uh, you know, increased military competition with China, different things like that. So what are these uh, priority shifts? Number one, the U.S. economy and the health situation in the country, you know, the Biden administration says that, you know, the United States needs to focus on what's going on at home. Obviously, the economic distress that's been caused by the pandemic, the health effects of the pandemic, and then more broadly, the fact that, you know, they're saying the threats of 2021 are not the threats of 2001. The global things the United States has to worry about are things like China, competition with Russia, climate change. And so they're saying, you know, to the extent to which we continue to focus on what is really a diminished extremist threat in places like Afghanistan makes it harder for us to do these other things. The uh, U.S. officials also said that this withdrawal is going to be coordinated with NATO. You know, we're not going to pull out and leave everybody hanging. I think they've also said they probably wouldn't be able to sustain their forces there without the help of the U.S. I think Germany is the second biggest force there. So it's all going to be in conjunction with uh, our allies there. You know, everybody's going to be aware of what's happening. That's what they're saying. Yeah. And, you know, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Secretary of State Tony Blinken were in Brussels today and they're coordinating with NATO countries. So the idea is, you know, the the phrase that they're using is in together, out together. And, you know, I mean, I think that the the goal is to have them all leave by September. So they've got four months and there's about 7000 NATO troops there. So that seems feasible. To me, you know, the the real question in my mind will be how does the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces fare without the kind of support they've had from NATO and the United States for so many years? And that's been crucial for them in terms of air support, in terms of intelligence support, in terms of advising. And so, you know, that's going to be the big thing to focus on. You mentioned a little bit about kind of the lessons we learned from Iraq and when we pulled out there. And those are a chief among some of these concerns here. In Iraq, the Islamic State is what kind of took over once we left a little bit. Over here in Afghanistan, the worry is al-Qaeda. And, um, you know, they're saying that there will be a response if they reemerge, I guess. So, But that's kind of where the worry is centered around. Yeah, that is certainly one of the concerns. And, you know, the White House assessment at this time is that al-Qaeda does not currently have the capability to plan external attacks in the way that it used to. But obviously that could change or there could be some new group. So what they have done is, or what they're going to do is uh, reposition some of the counterterrorism activities and, and hubs, if you will, outside of Afghanistan, close enough, they say, to be able to respond if there's a need. So you look at aircraft or intelligence capabilities or, you know, munitions if needed that they could activate if there was something that they needed to do in Afghanistan. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.